I had already recorded this week's podcast when the unimaginable happened. Domestic terrorists, at the encouragement of the U.S. President, stormed the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Now, four people are dead. In light of this, I thought it was appropriate to re-record this week's podcast. The senseless violence during what should have been a procedural session of Congress shocked the nation. Wait, I take that back. It shocked the world. The country that is usually held up as a standard of freedom and democracy in our time descended into chaos and destruction. As I watched the horrifying events unfold this week, I noticed something that brought tears to my eyes. Some of the terrorists were holding flags that said Jesus on them. Others were holding the universal Christian flag. If we are to understand this symbolism correctly, these terrorists wanted us to believe that God was on their side. They wanted us to believe that they were doing God's work. Is this true? Where is the kingdom of God in all of this? And does it have anything to do with the feast we celebrated this week? The bottom line? Jesus does announce the coming of a new kingdom, but it's not one of this world. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome to The Way. I'm your host, Father Dustin. As I said in the introduction, I had already recorded an episode for this week, but then violent insurrectionists broke into the U.S. Capitol, and I thought it would be appropriate to address those events. As I said, some of these insurrectionists were carrying Christian flags. One had the flag with the Christian fish, the one you see often on cars, with the word Jesus in it, and others were carrying the general Christian flag. It's a white flag with a blue square in the upper corner with a red cross, if I remember correctly. You see it quite a bit in church fellowship halls or sanctuaries. And by carrying these flags while violently protesting at the U.S. Capitol, it was almost as if they were saying God blesses what they were doing, that God was on their side, or they were fulfilling God's plan for America. And I think we have to be very careful when we say these sorts of things. And I think we have to be very careful when we say something like, God bless America. Because what do we mean by that? Oftentimes we think of it in a very egotistical way, that we are somehow superior to other nations, or that God is blessing us because we think we are superior or better than others, or that we've gotten it right in terms of government. But imagine if Israel, at the time of the kings, had said that. God bless Israel. Well, how did God bless them? He ended up destroying Jerusalem and sending them into exile because their understanding of justice was not God's understanding of justice. And we have to be very careful when we ask God to bless us as well, because perhaps that blessing may come in the form of justice. 
After all, Scripture is very anti-king, and we can't always assume God is on our side just because we consider ourselves to be Christian. Now, though the violence we saw this week at the U.S. Capitol may be shocking for us as 21st century Americans, because we haven't seen such a thing in our own country, at least not in our lifetimes. But this sort of violence and nationalism is not foreign to Scripture. I want to remind all my listeners that this same sort of violent nationalism was happening in the first century at the time of Jesus. There were people called zealots, and what they were advocating for was an overthrow of the Roman government, at least in Judea. They wanted to rule themselves, and they often acted out violently. It was not uncommon within the first few centuries to see violent uprisings, sort of like we saw this week in Washington, D.C. In fact, Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, writes about some of these uprisings, though Josephus is trying to defend the Jews to the Romans. In other words, he's on the Romans' side. But he talks about various violent uprisings. And many of these uprisings had been inspired by the Maccabees. Now, the Maccabees, a few centuries earlier, had been successful and were able to re-establish an independent Israel. And so, by the first century, there were those who thought, or those who wanted, to re-establish an independent rule apart from Rome. And this is the context of Messiah. They felt that there would be a political Messiah who would come and lead an army to violently overthrow Rome. After all, Messiah means anointed, and it was the kings who were anointed, and what they were looking for was another king to overthrow Rome, one from their own people. And I think it's powerful that the events of this week happened on January 6th, the very day that the church celebrates Epiphany. Now, Epiphany is a Greek word that means manifestation. And in Western Christianity, the celebration is of the Magi, sometimes called kings, the Magi who came to visit Christ. And we all know the story, how they brought the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we also know the story that as they were following the star looking for Jesus, they stopped to consult with King Herod. Of course, Herod was very afraid because of the insurrectionists. He was afraid that Jesus was being proclaimed a king, a political king, and would try to violently overthrow him and the Romans. And for this reason, Herod sought to kill King Jesus, if you will. And in the end, he ends up murdering the holy innocents. In fact, I saw a Lutheran pastor on Facebook write, On today, the Feast of Epiphany, I am reminded that an insecure ruler named Herod was so threatened by the birth of Jesus that he tried to overthrow the result by putting a hit out on a toddler. Now that was by Nadia Boltz-Weber. 
I disagree with a lot of her theology, but I think she hit the nail on the head with this one. I think she rightly identifies that Herod was threatened by this. And I think she's right to point out the irony on the day that the Western Church celebrates Epiphany and the visit of the Magi that insurrectionists try to overthrow the U.S. government and the democratic election that we just had. But I think it also is relevant for us in the Eastern Church as well. Now, we also celebrate Epiphany, although we often call it by a different name, which is Theophany, which means the revelation of God. And we don't celebrate the coming of the Magi. Instead, we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. But I think what we see in this very feast is the coming of the kingdom of God. We see the enthronement of Jesus. In other words, we do see a revelation of sorts. We do see an overthrow of earthly power in the baptism of Jesus. But unlike what we saw this week at the Capitol, Jesus' revolution is not violent. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's non-violent. But what I want to emphasize is that Scripture's version of Jesus' baptism is not just the revelation of the Trinity, which is usually the focus of our liturgical services, but rather we see the installation of a new kind of king, a king who brings the kingdom of God. And we see the installation of Jesus precisely so that we can oppose earthly power but in a non-violent way. Now, what's my evidence that this is what is happening in the baptism of Jesus? Well, let's go through it briefly. And I'm going to use the Gospel of Mark as our reference. It begins, The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, written in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Look, I'm going to send my messenger before you, He will prepare your way. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare a way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, that's verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1, and I'm going to stop there. And I want to look at that very first line of that quote. Now, Mark says it's from Isaiah, which isn't quite true. That last part of the quote is from Isaiah, but the first part is either from Exodus 23 or Malachi 3. And that first part is, look, I'm going to send a messenger before you. Now, the word messenger here can sometimes be translated as angel. It's the same thing. An angel is a messenger. And messenger in Hebrew is related to the word for king. A messenger is someone who is sent with the proclamation of a king. And I think we can't forget that in this context, it's always a royal messenger delivering the king's decree. Now, this is probably a quote either from Exodus 23 or Malachi 3. In Exodus 23, starting with verse 20, it says, I'm going to send an angel or messenger before you to protect you as you journey and bring you into the place I have prepared. And here, Exodus is talking about entering the promised land after being freed from slavery to Pharaoh. Now, remember, they had to encounter all sorts of different peoples in the Promised Land, and God had to conquer it for them. 
And so we see the establishment of Israel here. It's an establishment of God's people as a nation. In other words, as they enter into the promised land, Joshua and the other Israelites are going to have to oppose the kingdom that already exists there. So already at the beginning of this quote, we see the idea that a new order is coming, a new nation, a new kingdom is beginning. The other place that this quote might come from is Malachi 3.1. There Malachi says, I am about to send my messenger who will clear the way before me. Indeed, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you long for is certainly coming says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Now, Malachi actually is the Hebrew word for messenger, so the prophet's name means messenger. And he's speaking to an Israel that has been exiled into Babylon, and they were hoping to go back to the Promised Land. They were hoping to have another exodus, if you will. Though this time, instead of from slavery to Pharaoh, it was from slavery to Babylon. And they were hoping that God would re-establish his kingdom with them. And this is Malachi prophesying this. So again, with Mark using this passage, we see the proclamation of a messenger, a royal messenger coming from the king, talking about the establishment of something new of a new kingdom, something that will oppose Herod and Rome. But this kingdom, I want to remind you, will look nothing like Caesar's kingdom. It will look nothing like Herod's kingdom. It will not be a kingdom of violence, but of God's peace. Now, with the rest of the quote that Mark gives, it does come from Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah says with a few edits for clarity and brevity. A voice cries out, In the wilderness clear a way for the Lord. Build a level road through the rift valley for our God. Every valley must be elevated, and every mountain and hill leveled. The rough terrain will become a level plain, the rugged landscape a wide valley. The splendor of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it at the same time. The first voice responds, All people are like grass, and all their promises are like the flowers in the field. But the decree of our God is forever reliable. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. Look, the Sovereign Lord comes as a victorious warrior. His military power establishes his rule. Look, his reward is with him. His prize goes before him. Like a shepherd, he tends his flock. He gathers up the lambs with his arm. He carries them close to his heart. So the last part of this quote that Mark uses is another royal image. He's talking about how earthly kings will be leveled and how their decrees don't last. He says they're like flowers in the field. They may look good one day, but they wither away and die the next. And he talks about God as a victorious warrior whose military power establishes his rule. 
But notice how that rule looks. It looks very different than earthly kings. It looks like a shepherd tending to his flock, one who gathers lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart, it says. This is a very different looking kingdom. Yet this kingdom is still opposed to the violence of Herod and the violence of Rome and Caesar. So let's look at the rest of the baptism and see how this plays out. This is Mark 1, starting with verse 4. And so it was that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All Judea and all the people of Jerusalem made their way to him, and as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins. John wore a garment of camel skin, and he lived on locusts and wild honey. In the course of his preaching, he said, Someone is following me, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to kneel down and undo the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It was at this time that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. No sooner had he come up out of the water than he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, my favor rests on you. Now, in the Orthodox liturgical tradition, we sing about how this is the revelation of the Trinity. The Son is baptized, the Father speaks, and the dove symbolizes the Holy Spirit. But scripturally, I think something very powerful is going on, and that's the installation of a king. So the words that Mark records God saying, Behold, this is my beloved Son, my favor rests on you, actually comes from the second psalm. And here's what that psalm says. This is Psalm 2, verses 5 through 12. Then God angrily speaks to them and terrifies them in his rage, saying, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king says, I will announce the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. This very day I have become your father. Ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal property. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will smash them like a potter's jar. So now, you kings, do what is wise. You rulers of the earth, submit to correction. Serve the Lord in fear. Repent in terror. Give sincere homage. Otherwise, he will be angry. And you will die because of your behavior when his anger quickly ignites. How blessed are all who take shelter in him. That's a very powerful psalm. As we know, when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, we aren't to think of just that particular verse, but the entire context. So when Mark has God saying, you are my beloved son, we aren't to think of just that verse, but this entire psalm. Now, historically, Bible scholars think the psalm was used at the coronation of a king in ancient Israel. This was one of the psalms read in the ceremony. And so if we are quoting the psalm at Jesus' baptism, it's like saying that Jesus isn't just being baptized, but he's being coronated 
as Israel's new king, the eternal king, if you will. And it can't escape our notice that God gives all the nations to the king as their inheritance. And then there comes a warning to all rulers of earth that they are to submit to correction. They are to serve the Lord in fear, repent in terror, and give sincere homage to God. I think that's quite a statement. In other words, all rulers are to submit to God's justice. They are to obey His commandments and statutes, and they aren't to seek power for themselves. In other words, in Jesus' baptism, God is installing His Son as His own King. And this shouldn't surprise us. In the ancient Near East, kings were said to be the sons of God. And so it's no surprise here that Jesus, as the Son of God, is installed as a king. And as I said, God's kingdom does oppose Herod. It does oppose Rome and Caesar. It does oppose the earthly rulers of the first century. And I would say it probably opposes our rulers today. Yes, even our American government which is why we have to be careful when we say, God bless America. But this kingdom looks very different. As we go through the rest of Mark, this kingdom asks us for repentance. This kingdom invites the sinner to repent and enter into it. This kingdom invites the oppressed and the weak and the most vulnerable of society, to enter into it. And this king, instead of entering Jerusalem on a white horse with an army, enters Jerusalem on a donkey in humility. The kingdom of God sees its king crucified on a cross, and in this very weakness, in this humility, comes victory. It's a very different sort of victory. It's not an insurrection of people storming a capital carrying Christian flags, but rather letting the earthly powers do its worst and still fail, because on the third day, Christ rises from the dead. So, brothers and sisters, if we are to join the kingdom of God, we are to follow Christ's example We are to listen to God's commandments and God's justice. We are called to be peacemakers, not insurrectionists. So I hope this podcast was somewhat useful to you. I hope you can see how even the baptism of Jesus is somewhat of a political statement against the rulers of this world. And I hope you see how it's a statement about God's kingdom coming to bear on earth and hold earthly power accountable. And I hope you can see how the kingdom of God is supposed to bring peace and love. How we're supposed to get along with one another and love our neighbor rather than spew hatred and violence. So I pray that God's peace does come upon all of us and that we are able to walk the way of God's commandments. I'll see you next week. <laughs>